Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, we celebrate the spontaneous story slammers from last season with part two of our annual story competition, Slammer of the Year, Battle of the Bands. We broke our favorite storytellers from the season into two groups, and in this episode, we showcase the winning team coached by Beth Norton, who banded together to be known as 63. Each storyteller chose a song to inspire a story, and then in the second round, they were asked to respond to a randomly chosen song with a three-minute story. Recorded live at the Outdoor Amphitheater at Jump in downtown Boise, they are Aurora Melman, John Mathai, Beth Norton, Juliana Meyer, and Holly Beach. It's story time. Please welcome Aurora Melman. Coffee, 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 wakey, 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 coffee, 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 yeah. So that's my song. Uh, Back when I was in high school, I had a really hard time. I had undiagnosed ADHD, and I couldn't pay attention in class, and I got bullied, and I started skipping and going to concerts and painting my nails black. You know, I was one of the bad kids. And... um, My parents eventually got sick of my shenanigans and they were too busy to notice I was miserable. And they decided to ship me off to a wilderness therapy program. Now this was not any wilderness therapy program, it was a Mormon wilderness therapy program in the desert of Arizona. And here I was, a Jew from Cleveland Heights, Ohio, who'd never heard of the LDS church in my life, much less been to the desert. So on the plane ride out, I was distraught, and I just wanted to be with my friends. They meant the world to me, and I promised myself that I wouldn't let them brainwash me. So we land in Phoenix, and they immediately send us out into the desert. Now, I knew I was in good company because the other new girl had stolen every squeegee from every gas station in her tiny Oklahoma town. (laughs) So cool. So then we went into the wilderness, and it was us and the tarantulas and the dollar-sized black widow spiders and raging rivers and snowy mountain passes and saguaro cactuses and us. Uh, They gave us a tarp, no tents, and we had an army surplus sleeping bag, weighed about 100 pounds, and we would roll it up with all our stuff in it and strap it to our backs with yucca rope. Super comfy. Um, We had to hike 5 to 20 miles a day to get to water. And, um, you know, I knew even though it was torture, they were just trying to get us to believe in ourselves. But I was having none of it. None of it. Um, In the mornings, they would wake us up with this song. Coffee, 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 wakey, 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 coffee, 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 yeah. But they're Mormon, and so we couldn't get any coffee. So I hated that song. And um, all right, so one day we get to our food cache a day early and we get a rest day, which was very rare. And I decided to go for a hike just to get space. And I decided to hike the nearest mountain. Uh, It was this big sandy dome and I wanted to get a view. So I start scrambling up the mountain and pretty soon I'm hanging on to like roots and sagebrush, which isn't very safe. And I look down and it's too steep for me to turn around. So I have no choice but to go up. And I scramble over a cliff eventually and up a rocky slope and throw myself onto the top of the mountain. And what do I see there 
40 miles from the nearest road, but a wall. There's a circular wall around the entire top of the mountain, and it looks ancient. And all over the ground are broken quartz crystals which sparkle in the sunlight. It was the most magical thing I had ever seen. And later I'd, I'd find out that Pueblo and Anasazi and Navajo medicine people would make these sacred circles. I decided to get into the circle and I sat down and I crossed my legs in the direct center and I put my hands on my thighs and I meditated. And the wind cooled me and the sun beat on my shoulders and even through my shut eyelids I could see the rainbows sparkling from the quartz crystals. And I felt in that moment completely at peace and destined and like okay, like everything was going to be okay. So a few months later, they let me go home. They decided I'd had a change of heart and that I'd worked really well with the counselors and that I had been reformed, but they were wrong. <laughs> what they didn't know was that I carried that sacred circle inside of me, and I still do. So some mornings when I really don't want to get out of bed and I really don't want to face the day, I sing that song to me and my daughter Coffee, 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 wakey, 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 coffee, 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 yeah. You guys want to sing it with me? Coffee, 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 wakey, 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 coffee, 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 yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, John Mathai. Good evening, everyone. Uh, so, when I was a little bit younger, I had a crush on a woman who, at the time, was at least a good foot taller than me. She was, and still is, because that's how age works, 20 years older than me, and was, and still is, happily married to a U.S. fighter pilot. So you could say that my crush had a super solid foundation and I had a very high success rate. Um, and for those of you who know the song, Hot for Teacher by Van Halen, she was my seventh grade math teacher. She was uh, really beautiful, very witty, and really good at her job. So good, in fact, that when I got into the college that I wanted to go to, I wrote her a letter thanking her for encouraging me to develop a passion for math and science. So I was, at that age, a giant nerd. I probably still am. I was very uncool. I sat front, left, center of her classroom and made it my personal mission to everyone in the world that I would be the best possible student on the earth as a way of winning her affection. Um, it was maybe successful. I don't know. But I was a really good student, and everyone knew that I had a crush on her. So herself included. Um, and my parents. I mean, literally everyone. Um, that school year was really tough for the school. There were a lot of administrative changes and issues that went on. So the parents got together, mine included, and decided to throw a big party at the end of the year for all the teachers and the administrators. And it was to be hosted at the community center in my neighborhood because there were a lot of families from the school that lived in my neighborhood, and it just made sense. Uh, it was cheap and easy and functional. My parents and I have always had a very honest relationship. 
And as the party grew nearer, they told me, look, John, there's going to be a lot, a lot of alcohol because it was a very stressful year. And so a bunch of teachers are going to get really drunk. And your English teacher, um, he's going to spend the night because we don't want him to drink and drive. And I was like, that's great. Um, like, whatever, I'm going to babysit my brother and I might see him in the morning. He was also an assistant soccer coach and a family friend. No big deal. So that Saturday rolls around. I'm babysitting my little brother. We play Legos, maybe some computer games, and I call it a night. I mean, he does too. Um, and so I wake up Sunday morning, and I come out of my room, and I look down the hallway, and I see that the guest bedroom door is closed. And I'm like, oh, right, my English teacher's here. Um, like, he's probably hung over and still sleeping. Um, and. I look and I see that my brother's door is still closed. And I'm like, oh, okay, like he's still asleep. He always sleeps late. And then the third thing I realize is that I smell eggs, which is kind of unusual because on Sunday mornings, my dad makes pancakes or waffles. That's his thing. He's really good at it. They're delicious. And I think nothing of it. And I trundle downstairs and step into the kitchen and turn around to find my super hot math teacher sitting at my kitchen table eating a breakfast burrito, which would explain the smell of eggs. And I would like to say that I looked her in the eyes and said, good morning. Instead, I stood there in my boxers, <laughs> mouth agape in dead silence, staring at her like, what the hell are you doing in my kitchen? Finally, my dad pipes up from the stove. Hey, John, why don't you go upstairs and put some pants on? As if to reemphasize that, yes, I'm in fact shirtless in my underwear, standing in front of my math teacher, who I see five days a week, and she's really hot, and I'm going through puberty. Yes, I will go upstairs and put some pants on. So I say, good morning. And I go upstairs, and I put on some pants, and I face my shame, and I come back downstairs and eat breakfast with my math teacher. She had been also really drunk the night before, and my parents made the wise decision to offer her the room above our garage on an air mattress so she didn't have to drink and drive. And the whole incident was simply just banished from memory. We didn't speak of it the rest of my seventh grade math year, nor the following year when she taught me eighth grade math, or when we went for the trifecta and she taught me the entire year of ninth grade math too. Simply erased from existence. Thank you. Please welcome back Beth Norton. So in addition to slamming this year, I also have had the honor of directing Story Story Late Night. And thank you for that. Um, I have been trying to solicit my friends mostly to tell their stories. And often they come with two. Um, and they say, okay, I think I've got, I've got two stories on this theme. Um, and they'll tell me the first one and it's funny and it's light and it's very palatable. And then they'll kind of like slowly speak up and they're like, but I have this other story. And that's typically the story that they're scared to tell. And it's usually that's, that's the one that I say needs to be told. So when I found out I had to fill in, that happened for me. I was gonna come up here and sing to you like traditional summer camp songs, um, but especially ones about putting your elbows on the tables and running around pools and gray squirrels and things. But um, there was another story that was pushing up behind that story that I knew I had to tell. 
So when I was eight or nine years old, uh, my favorite movie was The Bodyguard. Uh, yeah, co-starring Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. I was probably too young to see that movie as it skirts around the edges of violence and sex, but um, I loved the soundtrack the best and I had it on vinyl. I would put it on every day after school and stand at the foot of my pink canopy bed and I would sing all of the songs as loudly as I could except the Kenny G ones. I swore that I loved Whitney Houston more than I would ever love any artist in my life. And my aunt, who I lived with at the time, maybe trying to capitalize on what she knew was inevitable or maybe um, just trying to challenge me a little bit, bet me $10 that Whitney Houston would not be my favorite forever. But she didn't know how deep my love for Whitney went. Um, in the movie, Whitney Houston is gorgeous and fiery and strong. And th these were things that I knew to be true or hoped to be true about my mother. My mother left me when I was three years old. And that was just old enough to form a bond, but not old enough to form many real memories. Somehow I also grew up with the knowledge that she was addicted to drugs and that she had an abusive partner. And just like Whitney Houston, she had one daughter. Um, I knew I was gonna blank there. <laughs> um, I couldn't, I didn't know where she was. I couldn't feel her, but I could see Whitney Houston through the television screen and I could hear her through my record player. And every song on that album spoke to me in terms of my relationship to my mother. I wanted to run to her. I felt like nothing without her. I wanted to see her in every woman, but it was the most iconic and first track on that album that got to the heart of the story that I needed to believe about my mother. I needed to believe that she knew what she was doing when she left. I needed to believe that she was giving me up out of some self-sacrifice with my best interest in mind. And I needed to believe that she thought about me every step of the way, like I did her. I would end up losing the bet to my aunt sometime in high school, um, I think to Smash Mouth's Chickadee China, the Chinese chicken. <laughs> Had a drumstick in your brain, so I've taken what your next files with lights on. That amazing stuff. Look at like Acrobat. And then, okay. Um, um, but then in college, I smartened up and I thought more about it, and I was like, no, like, there is still no singer that's ever going to come close to Whitney Houston. And there's still no song that's ever going to touch me like that song. And I got my $10 back. <laughs> Later as an adult, my mom and I would reunite for some years. And I imagined that I had gotten my mother back. But she was still an addict. And I was still a little girl who was trying to save her. And we were both still believing stories that we had needed to believe in order to survive. So this time I had to walk away. And now when I hear that song, I don't imagine her singing it to me, but I imagine me singing it to her and to the parts of myself that had to adapt 
and to believe stories in order to survive. Thank you. Juliana Meyer. Um, so that song by Tishinosa um, is a Mexican folk song that my grandmother, my abuelita, used to um, sing to me when I was little. And um, it's a song that I started singing to myself in kind of a, an act of self-soothing uh, when we lost her in 2020. Um, I picked this song almost immediately because it speaks to the core of who I am. And um, tonight I face the challenge of how to tell that to you, you know, how to tell a story in four minutes that's woven into the fabric of who you are. So I picked a thread, a strand, and I'm hoping that in pulling at that strand, it doesn't unravel all of me, um, but I hope you'll all be there if it does. So. Um, yeah, what I have to, for you tonight is a mess, um, a true mess. My abuelita came to live with us when I was seven years old from Mexico City. And um, though it was with the pretense that my mother needed help, we really needed each other. My mother was about to petition for citizenship, and my abuelita was losing touch with reality due to dementia. And um, yeah, so we found some comfort in each other. My father's American and um, I grew up a havesy, somebody who was born really between two worlds. Um, and as such, I could act as a bridge between each other, often in my own family unit. The thing about being a bridge is that um, they're strong on their own, but everybody needs them all the time. So that's why I chose this song also, because Donde Voy is a, both a question and a compulsion. It asks, where am I going? While also saying that you must go, Donde Voy, this like indicates a path. As my grandmother, my grandmother's dementia progressed, um, she increasingly relied on me to be a bridge between what she once knew, her past, and her present. And in doing so, um, she taught me a lot of things. I became a reservoir of all of her knowledge. And she would forget something, you know, be looking for something in the kitchen, and um, I would know the recipe by heart, or I would know the, her story by heart. So I would help her, I would tell her, you know, the next piece or the next sentence. And increasingly that became my role. And it got to the point where she would have moments of lucidity in which she would say, oh, I don't need to remember, I have you. And I would say, no te preocupes abuelita, yo me acuerdo. It means, don't worry abuelita, I will remember. I still remember. And so, Um, I, I carry that knowledge with me, and it is very dear to my heart. Though sometimes 
I question, you know, how much of it is me and how much of it is her. Um, I also question, you know, am I Mexican enough in many circles? Am I white enough in others? And um, I think that's part of the identity, my new identity, right? Um, now that she's passed, I can see things in a different light. She would always say, un pez nunca ve el agua en el que nada, means a fish never sees the water in which it swims. And really it took her passing for me to reaffirm or reimagine donde voy. And since time is about to compel me, thank you so much, pero ya me voy. From Band 63, here's Holly Beach. Yeah, don't look too closely at my makeup. You might notice that I learned it from um, Magazine Bible, so. But tonight, hi everyone, I'm going to tell you about my first love. My first love was a tall, goofy baseball player named Brian. And he asked me to junior prom. And that night, he asked me to be his girlfriend. And I look back at that time as one of the happiest of my lives. I remember getting home from practice and getting ready as fast as I could, jumping in my mom's Volvo and driving over to his house. And usually I'd be blasting some emo music of the day that my cousin had burned for me on a CD because she had LimeWire, I didn't, so I was at the mercy of her tastes. And I remember the night I got my first speeding ticket, actually, I was really in the zone with Secondhand Serenade. <laughs> I'm gonna sing it for you because I thought we were supposed to actually sing. <laughs> and here's me driving my little 16-year-old self. Tonight will be the night that I will fall for you over again. Don't make me change my mind. And then, wee, wee, wee. <laughs> Oh man, so senior year, you know, we've been going strong for about a year, which in high school dating, that's like 10 years of dating. And I get my big chance to go to NYC. And maybe not the NYC you're all thinking of, but no, in my world, the big NYC was Nazarene Youth Convention. <laughs> Every four years, all the Nazarene high school students from across the country came together for a week-long convention. And I have some friends here who went, who went with me, so that's great. Um, and you know, I was here at this convention, miles and miles away from my sweet boyfriend, that the first seed of doubt started to plant itself in my heart that we were supposed to be together. And that seed came in the form of the beautiful boy band, Christian boy band, Starfield. Give me a woo if you know Starfield. My only friends from NYC, yay. <laughs> so you can imagine thousands and thousands of teenagers in this arena all sing, I'm gonna sing again, just forewarning, uh, all singing in unison with Starfield. Jesus, oh holy one, I sing to you, forgive And you know, it didn't help that the lead singer had this like thick blonde hair that he kept brushing to the side, but I just felt like this nudge just calling from God in my gut at the time that I was supposed to be with someone like that. <laughs> I was supposed to lead worship, my hot husband was supposed to lead worship with me, and Brian was very talented, very nice, could not sing at all, could not play an instrument, 
And I didn't see that in our future together. So this whole week, I'm feeling very conflicted about what my future holds for me. I start talking to my friends. I start praying day after day. And finally, the time comes to go home, and I don't know what I'm going to do when I get home. So I get on the airplane, and I think, you know, I need just like a concrete symbol from God. Like, give me a sign. So I devise a little plan. I think of a number between 1 and 100, because obviously that's a very big sample size. And um, the boy next to me was a kid I grew up with named Jake. And I look at him, and not giving him any context of what's going on, I say, Jake, pick a number between 1 and 100. (laughs) And he's like, okay. And in my head, I had the number ready. And the first number that came to me was actually the age my grandmother was when she passed away. So I'm holding this number in my heart, not really expecting him to actually say it. And he's thinking, he's like, okay, uh, 63? And my jaw drops, and my eyes just well with tears. And tears are coming down my face. I'm like, 63, that was my number. He said it. And poor Jake, he's turning red. He doesn't know why I'm crying. (laughs) I just look out the window the rest of the trip and contemplate what I have to do. So I get home, Brian and I have a deep talk, and we actually break up. I I left out the little part about my numbers scheme, but we we broke up. I can tell you today that I did not end up with a worship leader. Sorry, mom and dad. Um, (laughs) But I did end up with a guy who can sing. He has a beautiful singing voice. You won't find him on a church stage but you will find him at the local karaoke bar. He is known to have a mean Garth Brooks. Sing with me, please. Blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots and ruined your black tie affair. And uh, the person who gets to wiggle with it is Aurora Melman. I'm sexy and I know it. It's my jam, obviously. Um, play it every morning. So, <laughs> in 2011, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. I didn't get the entire way, but I made it over a thousand miles. And um, one awful morning, one awful morning, me and my uh, the guy I was hiking with, we'd been hiking for days, and we were disgusting and exhausted and it was fly season so there are these biting flies trying to kill us and carry us away and um, we hike and hike and hike and hike and we finally get to town and this is a big stop because there's a house where our friends are and it's like a hiker hostel and it's supposed to be a really good time and our friends are waiting for us so we stand on the side of the road trying to hitchhike and nobody picks us up because we look like complete dirtbags, of course, you know, like serial killers. And we sit there for three hours in the baking California heat and finally a car pulls over and we get in and they don't do this, but they do say, well, we can take you to the hiker hostel, but why don't we go to our house first and we'll make you some barbecue. And what do we say, but (laughs) okay, all right. You know, so we go over and we call our friends because they have the number and we let them know where we are. And they make us barbecue and they do our laundry for us. 
and they watered us and fed us and it's this gorgeous house on a hill with a big pool and they even after we showered allowed us to get in the pool so we're sitting in the pool it's like paradise right we've never been anywhere so wonderful especially after our morning and we hear the sound and it sounds like a party and the next thing we know there's this parade coming up the street and the parade is uh, looked like it was about 50 people and they're wearing boas and they're wearing play dresses and they have masks, some of them, and they have tambourines and drums and flutes and I don't know what. And they're coming to our house. And we realize that our friends are in the procession and it's the entire hiker hostel has come up because they don't want these guys to steal their hikers. So they're demanding, give us our hikers back, give us our hikers back, right? And so this whole dirty procession shows up at this fancy house, and they let us all go swimming. And after we go swimming, it is just, it's just a party during, while we're swimming, it's just the biggest party you can imagine. They have like, you know, the beach balls and floaties, and there's like 75 filthy hikers in the pool, and we're clean, you know? And, um... And I don't think I've ever felt more loved when the owner of the hiker hostel shows us that she's brought two costumes for us to wear back to the hostel so that we fit in. And so I've got this ruffly thing on over my hiking shorts. And I felt so sexy. John Mathai. Uh, so first, two things. One, I will be keeping my pants on. Two, it was a custom job courtesy of my friend Madeline, who sewed a quick, easy, like, tie so I could untie them and they would drop. Um, so if everyone would, like, give her a small round of applause, because they worked flawlessly. Um, okay. I went to a public boarding school, which is a really weird thing that a couple states have, Texas, South Carolina, North Carolina. And I went to the Governor's School of Science and Math which is just a magnet school for nerds. And uh, it's only juniors and seniors, and the dorms are gender gender divided because, heaven forbid, there would be like a pregnancy because you're technically wards of the state, and that would just send the state senate, who controls the budget for the school, into a tizzy. Um, So senior year rolls around and uh, AP exams are coming up. AP US History is a classic AP exam for juniors. And everyone crams and crams and crams the night before. And we all know it's incredibly ineffective, but we do it anyway. And so it's the senior's responsibility. We gather all the junior guys into the one of the study lounges the night before the AP US history exam. We cut them off at midnight. We're like, no more studying. You are not going to learn anything. You're not going to be any more effective. What you need is sleep. And instead of sleeping, we set up a wrestling tournament called A-Push Wrestling. We match guys up by weight class, and we have them wrestle. And administration absolutely despises this, so they try to shut it down every year. But we move room to room on all of the floors, wrestling matches, until they can try and catch us. And they finally catch up to us. And one of the RAs is in a powered motor scooter, and he blocks the doorway, and he won't let us leave until the head of discipline gets there. And we're like, you can't do this. It's against fire code. Like, we have to be able to get out this single entrance. And he's like, if there's an emergency, I'll back out. And we're like, okay, fair point. Um, And so one of my friends stands up and is like, Robert, I have to go to the bathroom. And Robert's like, 
suck it up. You've been wrestling for the past two hours. You can hold it a couple minutes more. And Thomas is like, no, Robert, I have to go to the bathroom. And Robert's like, I don't believe you. And Thomas is like, fine. And he looks Robert dead in the eyes and Thomas poops himself. And it instantly smells awful. Like you can immediately tell that this man just pooped his pants. And Robert is just like mortified and backs out and we all exit and no one gets in trouble. And it turns out that Thomas wore an adult diaper in the off chance he would need to poop himself as an emergency scenario. And you know what? He did and it was incredibly effective. Juliana Meyer. Hi. I hate this mic. Um, thanks for introducing me with my real name this time. Um, yeah, so that's a song I'll never have to sing because I have a sister who's in the audience tonight. Her name is Camille Meyer, and she is just wonderful. I could not have asked for a better sister. And um, my first story slam, I, uh, I regrettably Regina Georged the shit out of her. I made her look real bad. So now uh, I have to come up with a story like this second to redeem myself because I'm feeling guilty. Oh. Um, no, I'm just kidding. No, I have a story. Um, it's a horse camp story again. Do you guys know JMO Outfitters? Juniper Mountain Outfitters? Yeah, okay, there's like two horse girls. Not as lucky as my first night. Um, you win some, you lose some. I was going to use a giddy-up line. It's useless now. Um, but yeah, so we went to this horse camp, and um, I was older than her. I am older than her. And uh, I was a counselor in training, and so I got a lot of, like, really cool privileges. And one of those privileges was being privy to all of, like, the big girls' pranks. And they liked to take the new campers out on um, these things called snipe hunts. Yeah, real lame. Um, They convinced these girls that they were going to go find snipes. And snipes were these, like, really, really cute things that had chocolate eggs or something. I don't know. Like, there was a point to finding them. I forgot the point. Anyway, so we would go and, like, leave these girls in fields by themselves until they cried and then laugh at them. And I thought that was really mean. But I did it. Um, Not my proudest moment. I did it. Um, So I'm Regina Georging myself right now in hopes that I'm being redeemed. Um, but yeah, anyway, so my sister was like out in this field and we're both freezing and I know about the prank and she doesn't and we're both waiting and no snipes ever come. My sister starts to like nod off and like fall asleep and I'm like, oh my God, this is bad. We're like in a field. It's dark. I can't find my way back home really. I don't know where everyone else is. And so all of a sudden I see like these little flashlights and we wander back to the flashlights and she tells me the sweetest thing. Probably she doesn't remember, but it was like the sweetest thing that anyone has ever told me. Juliana, I can always count on you. I know, the ultimate betrayal. I was really just setting her up to cry for hours in a field and she told me this. 
and I still feel really bad, but there it is. Sorry, Camille. It's Holly Beach. Hello again. I don't have 50 ways, but I have 63. Um, okay. My story might be a little sad. But, so I aforementioned the Garth Brooks guy over here. He drove all the way from Gooding tonight to come see this. So we got together 10 years ago, and <laughs> like bright-eyed idiots, we picked out a puppy together three months into our relationship. I knew my mother was like, this is a bad idea, and it was. <laughs> But that little puppy was the best thing that happened to us. He, he was just like a human, like an old, old wise sage of a human in a dog's body. And everybody knew it. Everybody who met him knew there was something special about this dog. And there would be times when I was tempted to leave Jake. 50 ways I was tempted. I was playing him out in my head. And that stinking dog, Oliver, I couldn't leave him. He had these big old googly eyes looking at you, fluffy long legs. You can't leave him. I do think that Oliver held us together <laughs> through some hard times. So um, a few weeks ago, Oliver started to have trouble walking. And we thought that he had hurt himself on a hike. So I start to baby him, feed him in his bed give him his water in his bed, carry him outside when he has to go potty. Um, did that for a while. And we just learned actually that he has cancer. So, and Oliver has been kind of our family for 10 years. He's been our glue. He's been our emotional support animal. Even like people that don't like dogs, like Oliver, like my sister-in-law who's traumatized my dogs told me, I'm sorry you haven't shown more love to Oliver. I understand he's your family. And I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> so, uh, but Oliver did get very sick. And Jake and I went through a new journey together last week. And we had to say goodbye to our boy. And as he was going, I just thanked him over and over and over again for being exactly what we needed and giving and giving and never leaving us, and never taking or judging, just giving, just loving. The most pure, unjudgmental thing I have ever experienced in my entire life. And I can tell you that after he died, the outpour of love into our lives has been very incredible. Like four different workplaces for Jake and I where Oliver has somehow interacted we had people reaching out to us. I used to work at a newspaper. I had reporters texting me. No, not Oliver. We love Oliver. Um, he, he changed a lot of lives, and he changed our lives. And he would never leave us, and we would never leave him. And we're so grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. 
Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our show sponsor, The Record Exchange. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thank you for being a part of our story.